Whether it's Kroger Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Kroger has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Choose from a great selection of digital coupons and use them up to five times in one transaction. Check our app for details. Kroger, fresh for everyone. My name is Tracy Ariel, and I am unapologetically Canadian. Today, I'm interviewing Pedro Gregorio, who is an expert in electromagnetic fields. He's been consulting on a class action lawsuit uh, here in Montreal, and uh, he also happens to be my life partner. And so we're talking about electromagnetic fields, what they are, and um, how he's learned about them over the years. Hey, Pedro. Hi, Tracy. So before we begin, can you tell us what are electromagnetic fields anyway? So electromagnetic fields are pretty much everywhere. Anytime you think of anything uh, in nature or technology that uses electricity, uh, you'll have an electromagnetic field present. Um, it's a, a phenomenon that's so broad uh, ranging that it's difficult to, to comprehend. It can be complex. But I guess one of the simplest ways to think about it is a rainbow. Everybody knows what a rainbow is, right? It has light, it has colors. There are different colors, but it's all light. Uh, if you were to stretch that rainbow out in both directions uh, towards the, the, the lower frequency end, you'd get heat, you'd get radio waves, you'd get microwaves, uh, eventually you'd get static fields like the static electricity when you pull a sweater over your head or the Earth's magnetic field which doesn't change. And if you go in the other direction all the way up uh, to higher frequency, you get to dangerous things, things that can cause cancer directly like uh, radiation. Uh, cosmic uh, waves, uh, gamma rays, all those crazy things. And so if I, when I think of electromagnetic fields, I think of uh, electro, basically the towers next to our house or uh, my cell phone or uh, heck, even the computer we're talking on now in the microphone. So uh, how can you think about it when you're thinking about those devices? Sure. So, I mean, electricity, you know, uh, people have been using electricity for a little over a hundred years and not to put too fine a point on it any device that uses or creates electricity is using or creating electromagnetic fields uh, they come basically in, in two general flavors if you want to talk about it that way there's uh, power fields so the kind of stuff that uh, you'd have uh, coming in on your hydro wires or uh, devices that are making motors spin that use a lot of power uh, including microwave ovens that heat your food. And then on the other end, you've got low-power stuff that's used for communication. So TV signals, radio signals, your cell phones, those kinds of things. So I get a little confused about this because I've heard that there's something called ionizing radiation, ionizing electromagnetic fields and non-ionizing electromagnetic fields. I don't even know what that means. Right. So... Um, to come back to the rainbow analogy that I was talking about earlier, uh, people, when you get those funny sunglasses, they all say UVA and UVB protection. So if you were to look at the whole rainbow, including the invisible stuff at either end, when you get past the light you see, uh, the rainbow goes, you know, green, blue, 
uh, violet. If you go past violet, the colors you can't see, those are ultraviolet. And people know that those can cause skin cancer directly. That's kind of on the thin, hairy edge of where you start talking about ionizing radiation. So ultraviolet light and above ionize. What does that mean? It means the individual particles of light, if you want, are, are powerful enough to actually knock electrons. So think uh, if you had a bowling ball and you throw it at a brick wall, you can knock bricks out of the wall. But if you've got a ping pong ball and you throw it at the brick wall, it'll just bounce off. So the higher uh, frequency radiation is called ionizing because each particle is powerful enough to knock bricks out of the wall, to knock electrons out of the structures that make you and me. Okay, and then the non-ionizing. Uh, non the non-ionizing is, is more like the ping pong balls. So things that are lower than ultra, uh, ultraviolet. So blue light, green light, red light, radio waves, microwaves, all of those other uh, frequencies, all the way down to the FM uh, t uh, radio signals, AM radio signals, uh, shortwave signals, all of those things, and the power frequencies, the kind of 60 hertz stuff that you're, comes out of the wall socket. The individual particles of those are small. They're like ping pong balls or grains of rice. You can throw as many of those at a brick wall as you like. You're not going to knock out a brick. But so then why are we talking about um, EMF being harmful to people then? What, what, what is it that harms them? So just like we've figured out over the past hundred or so years as people how to manipulate electromagnetic fields to our advantage, um, evolution's had a head start on, on, on us. And in fact, all of biology depends on mastering electromagnetic fields as well. Throughout nature, uh, you, you look at birds and insects, they navigate magnetically. You look at uh, plants, they use uh, electric fields and create electric fields as part of their metabolism, as part of their growth. And if you look at you and me, our entire biology is determined uh, and takes advantage of electricity and electromagnetic fields. Whether it's neural signaling, all of the thoughts, all of the, the nerves, all of that happens in our body is based on electric uh, currents, electric fields. Uh, when we dream, our thoughts, our memories, all of that is electricity in play. Uh, on the other end, even uh, making our muscles move requires electric signaling. And even moving uh, things throughout our body, you know, like when we perspire or when we have to move uh, chemicals throughout our body for our metabolism, all of that leverages electricity. Now, whereas in technology, usually you're talking about electrons as carriers of electricity, in biology, you're talking about ions. It's slightly different, but the result is the same. You and I are electromagnetic beings. And so why, how are these things relating to one another? I mean, if we've got technology uh, creating electromagnetic fields, we've got people creating electromagnetic fields, why, why don't they just work together? Right. So they don't work together because they weren't designed to work together. All of the electromagnetic phenomenon that occur in nature have been there forever. The Earth's magnetic field, uh, lightning from thunderstorms, all of these other phenomena have been around and biology has evolved over millennia, over millions of years, with all of these as a background. In fact, you and I are actually tuned in to the, the beat, the heartbeat of the planet. There's actually uh, a frequency 
kind of like a, a pulsing that happens in nature that people need to be tuned into in order to sleep, for example. So the difference with our technology is that it's only about 100 years. And from an evolutionary point of view, that's instant. That's like if you're sleeping comfortably and someone comes in and flips on the light. It'll disturb you. All of these new technologies are disturbing. Why don't they play well together? Because conventional technology and science doesn't acknowledge that there's an issue. But um, if it did, was there a way to actually make it so that they can work uh, instead? Because, well, actually, first of all, I should ask, how exactly do they affect people? What, what is happening? Right. So going back to the person sleeping, uh, what do we do when we want to go to sleep? We turn off the lights, right? If someone was to come in and turn on a, a pulsing light, like a strobe light, it would be pretty hard to sleep. It disrupts your sleep, right? Well, the reality is that uh, electromagnetic fields used in communication, cell phones, etc., those are always on. We can't see them, but our brains can actually feel them. Some of the fundamental frequencies that phones use to talk to each other are actually matched to the frequencies of theta waves in our brain, the frequencies that we use for deep sleep and deep thought, and they can actually get disrupted. Even cardiac pacing, your own internal pacemaker that lets your heart beat in time, that can be affected by external technology, electromagnetic fields. So there's lots of evidence that shows how even weak uh, electromagnetic fields created by technology can impact uh, biology and human biology in particular. But so then how can, I mean, because not everybody gets sick from electromagnetic fields. I mean, there are hypersensitive hyper people who they can tell if you're talking on a cell phone to them, for example, but normal, like a lot of people don't feel the difference if they're talking on a cell phone. Sure. And I think there's a couple of things we want to be careful about. One is, is there an effect? And another is, do I know as an individual what's affecting me? Uh, there are lots of days when I wake up and I feel lousy. I may not be able to know why, but there's probably something making me feel lousy. And yes, there are uh, estimates of between 3 to 5% or more of the population are what we call the electrohypersensitive individuals. These are people who can be affected when they're surrounded by technology, whether it's uh, power technology or, or mobile phone technology or Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, those kinds of things more commonly. The reality is we are all electrosensitive. As we discussed before, our bodies depend on electricity for our, for our rhythms, for all of our vital functions, and we are sensitive to those electric fields, the ones that our bodies create to regulate them, and the disturbing fields that come outside accidentally. Those can also impact us. Some people are electro-hypersensitive. They're more sensitive than the normal population. And as you say, some of them, they can tell if there's a cell phone on in the room. Uh, and they can be affected in profound ways, uh, debilitating ways. And some people uh, have to literally try and escape technology uh, and find one of the few remaining spots where, where they're not exposed. Um, but having said that, uh, people aren't born electrohypersensitive. It's a phenomenon that develops on either chronic exposure uh, to fields or other environmental uh, uh, issues. It could be chemical sensitivity. And then typically there's a, a trigger event, an acute exposure, following which the individual continues to be hypersensitive to 
uh, ever uh, weaker uh, exposures. So somebody who, you know, for a number of years, no issue, all of a sudden something happens, and then from then on, they, they can't tolerate being in a room with people who have cell phones, for example. Wow, that must be really tough. It's actually uh, a huge challenge. And part of the challenge is, uh, A, for a very long time, they don't know what's going on. All of a sudden, they know that they're sick, but they don't know why. Uh, some of these folks struggle for a long time just to identify what the issues are. Uh, the medical establishment uh, not only doesn't know what's going on, but they are actively encouraged and taught that if someone presents with these symptoms, you refer them to a psychologist. So these people sometimes get ostracized, uh, they get isolated, uh, they find themselves in a situation where they have to uh, remove themselves from social situations, uh, they lose their friends, it can collapse relationships, uh, they can expend a lot of their personal fortunes trying to mitigate once they do find out what the issues are and how to protect themselves, they literally have to build cocoons and technological shells to protect themselves. It's, it's really a, a very challenging circumstance. So that's what a Faraday cage is? A Faraday cage uh, is a, a, a shield. What a Faraday cage does is it interrupts an electro, electric, uh, electromagnetic field. So for example, uh, you look out the window, you can see the light coming through, you pull down the blind, the light doesn't come through. Electromagnetic fields generally, the kinds we're talking about, radio and power frequencies, they'll go straight through solid walls. But what does stop them, depending on the frequency, is a metallic uh, shell. So a Faraday cage, uh, think of it as uh, kind of a mesh, uh, but it has to completely surround you, like, like, a, like a cocoon. And if you have a Faraday cage that's grounded, then the waves, instead of passing through and impacting the individual, they, they meet the shell, and they're kind of directed around like a skin. So they oh, pass okay. around the individual. So you literally make a protective cocoon. Uh, some people who suffer from uh, hypersensitivity they find that, that they have to create Faraday cages in their homes, uh, particularly in their sleeping areas. And uh, in some cases, it looks like a, a mosquito net over the bed, but it's actually a metallic mesh. Ah, uh, okay. Um, maybe we should go back to how you got involved with all of this stuff, because uh, you're an engineer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's not like you're anti-technology. Well, I'm an engineer, so of course I know everything. Ah. So... <laughs> A few years ago, when, when my daughter came and, to me and said uh, that for a school project, they were looking at how some people are sensitive to Wi-Fi and how Wi-Fi should be uh, controlled, if not banned, in schools, um, I looked into it. I did a little bit of research, and of course I found it was all in her head. It was completely something that she imagined, and there was no issue whatsoever, uh, which sadly is the situation for a lot of folks. A lot of the people today who are the, the most uh, expert uh, advocates uh, trying to raise awareness on this issue also started out in the same way, including, you know, epidemiologists, uh, oncologists, uh, medical experts, etc. People who had no idea anything was going on. Uh, later, uh, in talking with, uh, with uh, Metro Charles O'Brien about the work he was doing on, uh, on the class action, that's when my interest was piqued. And so I dug a little bit deeper. I dug beyond the the industry uh, sponsored research and the 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 the, the lines that uh, the mainstream want people to believe, which is basically 
that if it doesn't heat, it can't hurt. Now, I recall the time when we were talking about the smart meter that we now have on our home. Like every other Quebecer. <laughs> and uh, also, at the time, I happened to be doing some stories on some of the people who were actually refusing these smart meters, and we considered refusing one as well, and you looked into it at that point. What did you uh, discover at that point, and how have you changed your mind about it? So, uh, I talked a little bit about the doctrine of heating, and basically... For almost a hundred years, the, the thought has been that electromagnetic fields that are too weak to heat tissue can't possibly cause any harm. So we all know what a microwave oven is, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we all know microwave popcorn. You put the popcorn in, you hit the button, pop, right? What people don't know is a lot of the communication technology we use today, a uh, cell phone, if you tell somebody a cell phone, tell them it's a radio, they'll say, uh-huh, they'll understand a cell phone is a radio. If you tell them a cell phone is a microwave oven, they'll look at you like you're crazy. But the reality is that the radio frequencies that cell phones work on are not similar, not analogous, they are identical to the frequencies used by a microwave oven to pop your popcorn. The difference is the cell phone power is vanishingly tiny compared, so it doesn't heat. However, you're holding the cell phone right near your brain, right near the softest, wettest, most sensitive and fragile tissue on the body. And even though it can't heat, doesn't mean it can't hurt. Sure, a ping pong ball can't knock a brick out of a brick wall, but the human body isn't a static structure like a brick wall. We're constantly rebuilding ourselves, right? So think of it as a brick wall that's constantly with a, a mason taking out old bricks and putting in new bricks. If you start bombarding a mason with ping-pong balls while he's trying to replace bricks, he's not going to put the bricks in very straight. So non-ionizing radiation, microwave radiation, even low-power radiation, like in our telephones and our communication technologies, they may not be powerful enough to break apart the structures of our bodies. They can, however, and they do, there's a huge amount of of uh, epidemiological and other scientific evidence. They do impact our body's natural processes of regeneration, of growth, of signaling. And those effects can be pernicious. Maybe they don't happen on one exposure. But people who are using cell phones for extended periods of time can have huge impacts on their health, up to and including cancers. Wow. It's pretty shocking. Um, and, I mean, you've been working on this for, what, three years, sort of? Uh, about three years. And uh, what what have you learned in that time? Uh, where, where has your personal thinking on this issue gone? I mean, other than the fact... I mean, you, you align satellite dishes for a living. <laughs> yep. I, uh, what do I do for a living? Thank you for asking. I build microwave communications technologies. I build satellites. Yes, I do. Um, like with so many dangerous things, distance is our friend. And so the best way to keep yourself safe from electromagnetic fields is to avoid them. Now the nature of these things is that when you move twice as far from a source, you're exposed one quarter as much power. If you move ten times as far from a source, you're exposed to one one-hundredth the power. So when we think of things like cell phones, they work by putting up cell phone towers 
in neighborhoods, in backyards, in near schools, in church steeples. These are things that are in our community. And in order for those signals to get far enough to be useful, they have to be powerful enough that if you're close, you can be exposed to some pretty important fields. A satellite's always 36,000 kilometers away. You can't get too close to a satellite. And so rather than <clears throat> being something that creates uh, an acute exposure for certain individuals, it creates a uniform exposure for everybody at a level that's millions of times lower than uh, what we're talking about with the technologies we typically carry around. So yes, I do build microwave communications systems for a living. And yes, I have looked at the numbers and uh, I feel good about what I do. <laughs> and uh, but you can't you, you can't do cell phones that way, can you? Today's technologies don't make it practicable. But uh, it comes back to to one of your earlier questions: why why aren't people doing things better, or is there a better way to do things? People do stuff if they're told to do stuff. Technologists and and companies that make these systems, they have no reason to do it for almost a hundred years. Everyone's been told, this is safe, don't worry about it. And so what, what happens? The regulations reflect that, this is safe, don't worry about it. And the technology development and deployment reflect that, this is safe, don't worry about it. But if you were to look at where we're living today compared to what uh, is the natural background, um, how much more radiation is there now than there was uh, even 200 years ago? It's not a thousand times. It's not a million times. It's not a million million times. It's one with 18 zeros after it. It's almost unimaginable. These are levels that have never been seen, ever, in the history of, of humanity, of evolution. And they're increasing dramatically. When we went from uh, the introduction of the cell phones in the 90s, and then we went 2G, then 3G, then 4G, every time the background radiation in our cities is increasing thousands and thousands of times. And now people are talking about 5G, which is again a whole other technology that brings its own risks. Which risks? I can't tell you. No one has studied them. We haven't even identified what the 5G protocol is. And deployment is set for two years time. Wow. <laughs> and it seems to me I've heard that they're going to be going on the uh, Montreal-Windsor corridor. Is that true? They'll be everywhere, pretty much. There are a few uh, locations that have been identified as being key uh, spots to, to bring them up, to deploy initially and, and test it out and make sure it works. Um, there, are, there are sites all over the world. I, I don't know in specifics. But the density of these stations will be at least 10 times what uh, today's cell towers are. So like we were talking about before, one way to stay safe is to get farther away. You won't be able to get farther away. Um, all of this conversation sort of makes me think of a friend of ours who talked about, isn't it depressing being too informed about things? <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> and is there anything people can actually do or is it too late? I think it's never too late. There's a lot of things people can do. I mean, heck, uh, you know that I spend most of my time on my mobile phone. And it's not a question of, oh my God, this thing is dangerous, lock them all up and get rid of it and let's go live in caves. But it's a question of informed consent and it's a question of knowing what your danger is and uh, knowing what to do about it. 
Do I use a microwave oven? Sure, I use a microwave oven. Do I stand at the door and stare into it? No, I don't, because that's dangerous. Companies won't tell you it's dangerous, but we have examples of very high-profile individuals who today are hypersensitive because they did just that. They looked in the microwave oven during an unfortunate event. So there are things individuals, consumers, and citizens can do. Cell phones, very useful. Uh, if you're using them, don't hold them to your head. Use hands-free. Use a wired headset. Text rather than talk. If you've got a laptop, believe it or not, laptops, not meant to go on the lap. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the most sensitive biology we have is our reproductive organs. They're very fragile. And they're also poorly located for having a laptop on your lap or having a cell phone in your pocket. Uh, these are our behaviors that we can control. Uh, putting your phone in flight mode, in airplane mode, when you go to sleep, or preferably keeping it far away from your bed. Because even when you're not talking on the cell phone, it's still chattering away. It's checking in with the network. It's receiving emails. It's doing all kinds of stuff. It's updating to the latest version of the Google Apps or whatever. Our phones are busy little bees. And if we, just by turning the screen off, they won't stop. They keep doing stuff. And when we're asleep, when our brains are trying to regenerate, when we want our quiet time, we don't want that strobe light pulsing in the room, put the, uh, put the phone in airplane mode and you'll sleep better. Okay. Uh, actually, that reminds me of the uh, little container that you made for me, which is uh, um, which I can wear around my neck so that I can listen with my wired headsets to podcasts. <laughs> and uh, what is it lined with? Uh, in the case of the uh, the pouch that I made for you and, and for our daughter, it's lined with a metallic mesh that's been uh, designed to match and to uh, block the frequencies that the phone uses. I mean, cell phones are, are indiscriminate little communicators. They're, they're basically little... Uh, um, they're constantly talking in every direction. Now, obviously, the signal has to get to and from your phone or else your phone won't work as a phone. It'll just be a pretty box with a screen. But there's no reason that those signals have to go through our bodies. And so when I saw that you were constantly using your phone all the time, wearing it for listening to podcasts and things like that, I made this pouch and hangs around your neck, as you say. It's a pretty little pendant. And it's lined just on the side that faces your body. So the, the phone is perfectly comfortable communicating away from your body. But it, it, it sort of shields uh, the radiation from getting uh, towards you too much. Right. Yeah, but it's not 100%, of course. If it was like, 100%, your phone wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, it's not like a lot of, you don't want me to give up my phone. No, I'm not asking anybody to give up the, their phones. What I'm asking is for people to get informed about what the real dangers are, to get informed about what their rights are, and to start demanding that governments regulate real safety and that companies build devices that are truly safe. Uh, actually, there were a couple things that I learned when we were um, listening to the court case hearings um, that kind of surprised me. One was the um, the lawyer from Canada said that Canada um, regulations were not designed to keep individual Canadians safe, but only can Canadians as a whole safe. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what you've learned about um, 
how we are regulated at the moment and how those regulations differ around the world because I understand Russia has been a little farther ahead and primarily because of some of the things that happened during World War II, which I'm also investigating because of the book I'm writing. So, Yeah, the history of, of EMF is, is fascinating and it's, you know, geopolitically speaking. Um, people first began to be aware of, of this stuff uh, on or around the, the Second World War when we first started using radar for uh, detecting ships. And there was, you know, a condition called uh, radar sickness that these uh, radio operators would suffer from. It's some of them acute cases. Now, this equipment was very primitive, uh, very indiscriminate, and really, really loud. And people, a lot of people got very, very sick with it. But that's when people started investigating and realized, hey, there's more here than meets the eye. Let's figure out what's making people sick and how we can control it to, to keep people safe. And the Russians did a lot of early work on this, and they arrived at a safety level that was about a hundred times lower than the level that the Western world eventually settled on as being quote-unquote safe. Um, the level that is considered safe is a level that doesn't heat. What does that mean? It means if you... Uh, this is in the Western countries. In the Western countries, and it's enshrined in, in, in law, uh, Health Canada, uh, has uh, uh, safety code six, which is is a guideline. It's not a regulation. It doesn't have force of law, but it's a guideline that's enforced in government facilities and which Industry Canada uses to set uh, permit levels for technology vendors. And what it says is uh, the standard for safety is based upon uh, using a device for six minutes and having it not heat tissue more than one degree Celsius. Now, there's a safety factor, a tenfold or so, that's applied to that, uh, somewhere between 10 and 50, depending on the circumstance. But still, that's what's considered safe. If it doesn't heat, you're all good. And that's enshrined in, in Canadian uh, statute today. Uh, Health Canada, as you said, uh, the Attorney General of Canada at the, at the authorization hearing, uh, stated quite explicitly um, that the mandate of Health Canada is to ensure the health of Canadians. However, Health Canada has no legal responsibility for the health of any individual Canadian citizen, which is uh, a somewhat contradictory uh, statement, as you've observed. <laughs> um, but what about Russia? You said that there are their standards still 100 times lower? Uh, Russia's standards are still significantly lower. I'm not sure if it's uh, 10 or 100 times at this point. depends on, on the frequencies, and, and frankly, I haven't reviewed them recently. But what we have started seeing around the world are uh, certain countries and certain geographies and jurisdictions starting to take the matter much more seriously. Um, recently in France, uh, there's been law that bans the use of Wi-Fi in kindergartens and that mandates that Wi-Fi used in primary schools for lessons be uh, on a switch. So they turn on the Wi-Fi during the lesson and they have to turn it off after the lesson. And it's all about reducing exposure and keeping children safe. Because as, as we've said, the, the health effects, they don't happen overnight with one exposure. They happen over time with accumulation of exposure. And when we think about kindergartens and, and children, uh, 
they will be exposed in their life to levels way beyond anything you and I have seen. We only started using phones uh, in the 90s, right? When we were already adults. And so starting to expose children, as we're now doing routinely, uh, from infancy in some cases, uh, creates a huge amount of cumulative exposure at a time when the biology is fragile, the children are small, um, and, and the exposure is now ubiquitous. You can't get away from it. Well, didn't we actually expose our children to, didn't we have a baby monitor that uh, we could leave on in here from the rest of the house, like a, on Wi-Fi? Our, uh, the baby monitor that we had, because we're old people, back at the time when our kids were little, the baby monitor we had was what we call analog. It's kind of like an AM radio. So that's um, substantially safer because of a lot of details in, in the way they work. The, but today, yes, baby monitors are, that are available are similar to those cordless uh, house phones. They're digital devices, they're always on, they're always transmitting, there's pulsed frequencies, and they are among the most uh, hazardous, uh, especially for hypersensitive individuals, but they are among the most hazardous devices you can have in your home. And uh, unfortunately, the use of that demands that it be placed closest to the baby. So you're taking the most dangerous EMAP device, you're placing it on the nightstand next to the most fragile and precious thing that you've got, and nobody knows about it. Well, citizens don't know about it, the companies do know. Because while here in North America, that's the standard, in Europe, the devices have a very simple feature that's called sound activation. If the baby isn't making any sound, it turns off the radio transmitter. But we don't have that in North America? No. It's not available in North America. You can't even buy it in North America? You cannot even buy it in North America. Is that because it's cheaper to produce it the other way? Um, I haven't looked at it in detail. There may actually be a regulatory thing. People regulate technology deployment in order to keep you safe. Government makes regulations that tells you what you're allowed and not allowed to sell. I don't believe North American regulation supports it. Now. Uh, the cost, sure, maybe it costs a little more to put that uh, sound sensing uh, circuit in and, and the, the logic to switch it on and off. But you have pretty much identical products available in Europe and in North America. Almost identical packaging. The only difference is the one in Europe will shut off when the baby's not making sound and the one in North America does not. So the companies know. And so the one that doesn't shut off, that means it's always sending out those pulses. Wow, that's kind of horrifying. Just like those house phones, the what we call the DECT. Oh, the ones that you got rid of. <laughs> yes, the ones I got rid of. Uh, really loud, really uh, uh, annoying from an EMF point of view, very dangerous. And uh, even your cell phone, <coughs> when you're traveling in your car. You ever notice that when you're out in the country, your cell phone battery lasts not as long, or when you're doing long trips? Right. Well, that's because your cell phone is doing what's it's constantly hopping as it's moving in and out of uh, cell phone coverage, it, it basically has to scream, here I am, here I am, to, to find a, a signal as you're traveling. Or if you're out in the country and the cell station is, is farther away, your phone actually boosts its power, transmit power, so it can scream louder to get a signal to the station. So you go out into the country to get away from electromagnetic radiation, and what does your phone do? It turns up the electromagnetic radiation <laughs> in order to be able to keep working. Not his fault, that's how it was programmed. And it's not really the programmer's fault either. He doesn't know. Nobody knows. 
it's an industry well-kept secret. Wow. Um, so what's uh, next in your adventures on this? Uh, what Do you have any... Um, how would you like to communicate to people about all of this? Uh, do you have any idea of what... Uh, what you're going to do next? Well, there are lots of great resources out there for anyone who's interested in in, uh, in the issue, and I think we all should be. Uh, some of them are really approachable and, and readable, and there's a huge wealth of, of scientific literature, si thousands of papers uh, dissecting, expanding, and, and investigating every aspect of, of EMF uh, and health-related issues. So anyone who's, who's keenly interested can look into those. But there are some great websites, including uh, C4ST, Canadians for Safe Technology, uh, set up uh, out of Ontario. That's uh, gathered together some some great resources. Uh, there's lots of really motivated people around the world uh, who who take this issue to heart and are doing some uh, fundamental and groundbreaking work uh, to try and and raise awareness, to try and uh, affect change in terms of the way uh, these technologies are regulated and uh, ultimately how they're designed and, and deployed. So uh, it's not all doom and gloom. I think with everything it starts with, with education. But really, it really is about people, A, understanding that the dangers are, are not non-existent and they can be quite significant, and B, uh, gathering together and, and, and asking, seeking out, uh, insisting with our, with our political leaders that the issue is real, it's something we care about, and that it uh, be addressed. Well, and some of the things we'll be talking about in this summit um, will also uh, lead to that, because we're going to be trying to interview a few of those experts from around the world, and uh, also uh, what we're doing with, uh, um, there's some local people who've tried to get together a group called uh, Safe EMF, and we're trying to uh, expand understanding about what all of these issues and so hopefully you'll be uh, talking to us more those of us who are doing that um, and now since this is a dual podcast and I'm using it for unapologetically Canadian as well my last standard question to everyone is do you consider yourself Canadian and if so what does that mean to you I'm a proud Canadian and have been since 1984 when I took my citizenship oath even though I wasn't born here I've been in Montreal pretty much all my life and uh, it's the only country I've ever known, so for sure I'm Canadian. I still have a very strong uh, heritage from my birth country of Portugal, and very proud of that too. But being a Canadian uh, <laughs> means never having to say you're sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Tracy. So that was Pedro Gregorio, and this is Unapologetically Canadian. Thank you for listening to Unapologetically Canadian. Lucky Land Slots, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.